The movie was out of our control. Hard Day's Night, we pretty much had a lot of input into, mm -hmm. and it was semi-realistic. But help, Dick didn't tell us what it was about, and I realized, looking back, how advanced it was in a way. It was a precursor to the Batman Pow Wow series on TV and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually didn't think it was as good. I liked Hard Day's Night. I think the story in Hard Day's Night was better. It was good to make, Help, and it's, it's a nice film. It's sort of funny. It's very a period film now. We just took it all very lightly, really had a laugh most of the time. Ho, 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 ho. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. The Beatles, naked. to just make a color version of Hard Day's Night. In other words, no more a fiction, another fictionized documentary. We couldn't show them in their private life, which would be the next logical extension to it, because that was by then certainly X-rated, or at least what X-ratings were in those days. Um, and so if we can't show them in their working life, and we can't show them in their private life, they have to become, if you like, um, passive recipients of an outside plot or an outside threat, brought on by a weakness within themselves. And that led to the idea for help. The Help title song 
with the bondish thing going on there really summarizes the film in many ways, doesn't it? Because even though it's very much of its time help, it also defines its time. In this case, it's actually following a current trend for those sort of, you know, secret agent spy movies and TV shows. Well, it was what was big, you know, at that time. When you think of it, the two main exports from the UK at that time are Bond and the Beatles, aren't they? Yeah, have to be. And Corduroy. Yes. So this show, we're not really so much reviewing help, although I'm sure we will, but we're really talking about the impact that it had on its time. Because I think at the time, it had some mixed reviews, didn't it, in terms of it was still the Beatles, still fantastic music, but it didn't seem to have quite the energy that A Hard Day's Night had. And the storyline seemed a bit weaker. But I think over time... We've now come far enough that it's really being reappraised and it is a pop art classic in its own way. Well, it is a pop art classic. And maybe the thing was at the time, everything was so new about the Beatles in 1964. And it seemed as though they were incapable of making a misstep. And even the idea of making a pop movie, you know, most of them were pretty... What was that Cliff Richard one, Summer Holiday? They were yeah. kind of like that stuff, right? So, or, or you know, Elvis is, by this point, Elvis is making bad films in the, yes. you know, clam bake and stuff like that. So that's all they're expecting. And when they got something, you know, different and really cool, it just... No, sorry, uh, Eric, clam bake was 1967. You need to know your Elvis movies on this mm. show. So 1965 comes around. You know that this is my favorite of all the Beatles movies. So I am biased. As somebody who this isn't their favorite all-time Beatles movie, you'd be better equipped to answer this question. Is it because it's not a giant leap forward in imagery or anything? Like, there's still the lovable kind of perceived as mop tops in the U.S. and that they're kind of playing along, it could seem, in this particular film. Do you think that's what would have given people a sense of letdown, I guess, a little bit? I guess so. A bit of being there, seen that, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, the I, color I mean, version. for sure. But there's certainly an energy to A Hard Day's Night in terms of their own participation. Yes, there's all the quick cutting by Dick Lester, uh, but also there's a definite energy you can feel in their performance that really isn't there for most of help. And I'm not saying that we should have expected it to be, but it was noticeable. Maybe that's the switch over from scotch and coke to marijuana. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's a little, in a sense, that makes it a bit ahead of its time for me. It's 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 a little more 1967. Well, it, <laughs> it is in a, a number of ways. I mean, let's go through some of the things. First of all, the first thing that we see are the exotic locales, right, which are I think there were more in this movie than for any preceding pop movie. You know, Elvis went to Hawaii. Cliff Richard may have gone to Europe via the studio, but they went to some genuine exotic locales here. We'd done the Hard Day's Night uh, film, which was great, and uh, Dick Lester had done this kind of slightly artsy black and white thing that I think we'd all loved. So the next thing was, OK, well, what do we do now? Well, maybe a colour film. In colour, yeah, wow, they see they had more money for that one. So then things went a little bit uh, awry, I think, because what happened then was um, we started saying, well, we've never been to the Bahamas, could you write that in? Oh, I have got another girl, another 
I love it, love it, love this film. It is it is the ultimate comfort food. Yeah. As we are recording this show today, the world is in a very interesting place, shall we say, and a bit of doubt. I mean, I nothing was more fun than to run to see help again. Another excuse to see help always puts me in a great mood, always makes me laugh. When I look back at it now, I didn't realize as a kid how beautifully this thing was photographed. I, I agree, totally. And each time, you know, I don't know about you, but I remember seeing it with my buddy Rob Kelly in the Oriental Theater in Mattapan Square in the summer of 65. We got to go with the big kids. But we sat together and it was a double feature, Hard Day's Night and Help. And I remember how bright it seemed and vivid, but I never really felt that again until it came out on DVD. You know, you'd yeah. see it on television and it looked kind of, you know, it was pan and scan. It was kind of washed out. And it was kind out. of washed out. Yeah, I agree. And same same now in the you, UK. Once you once it was remastered, oh my God. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful. I mean, especially that opening scene with Leo McKern. In the name of Riverty, daughter of the mountains, whose embrace with Rani made the whole world tremble. Whose name is the terrible? Whose name is baleful? Whose name is the inaccessible? Whose name is the black mother, mother of darkness? We turn our hearts to Kaili, drinker of blood, black mother, killer of demons, gorge on this flesh. That's the other thing, right? The colourful characters in the film. I mean, what is that sect? I mean, it's this sort of mishmash hybrid of Aztec and Mayan and Buddhist and Hindu and Arabic and you name it. Plus, we've got the Indian restaurant, of course, where George first picked up and strummed a sitar. And the knock-on effect of that was that it would help to kickstart the West's Eastern philosophy fascination and embracement. Isn't it fascinating? Maybe that was just an arbitrary thing from Mark Bem. Maybe that was just in the air and he just kind of latched onto it. But how interesting that within months, it seems like, sitars are on, you know, records by the Kinks and the Beatles mm. the, and the Stones. Yeah. Well, George picked up that sitar and I've read that, you know, to him, it sounded like the sound of paradise. And I can believe it because of how he embraced that whole kind of musical angle and then the philosophy that went with it. During the filming of Help, there was some Indian musicians in a restaurant scene and I kind of messed around with the sitar then. But 
during that year, towards the end of that year anyway, I kept hearing the name of Ravi Shankar. I heard it about three times. The other thing that fascinates me, and you just touched upon this, is the mishmash, the yes. this cult, <laughs> which I think is based loosely on the thuggy cults. This was a gang on the Indian subcontinent in central India, and then was now Bangladesh, apparently. There was a tribe of people, the thuggy. When you said thuggy, I was thinking of muggy, tuggy, weggy, and thuggy. No, I mean, really, the thuggy were a strange cult of robbers and murderers. They would embed themselves. I, I guess they were a nomadic people. Right. And what they would do is small groups of them would sort of attach themselves through sympathy to some migrating group of people throughout India in the subcontinent of India. And their method of operation was to sort of get embedded in a, in a traveling group of people. And then at a certain point, the rest of their thuggy tribe would come in. In the middle of the night, they would murder their hosts and steal everything. And this mm. was how they worked. And that word, the word we use today of thug I comes see. from the thuggy. Ah, and I, I thought- learned something. Ring over the water. We must go. Bhuta. You ask of me, master. Obedience and love. This is so. Ame. This is so. The ring. The ring. Has nobody looked on the wash basin? I am making the immediate arrangements for my necessary... Our maid. At once. Visit to England. In hand and already waiting. Something must be done. Without the ring, there will be no sacrifice. Without the sacrifice, there will be no congregation. Without the congregation, no... More me. We're in hypersensitive times. One of the criticisms of Help is that it's a racist film because of these stereotypical portrayals. Well, uh, there goes every Bond film then, you know, with the portrayal of the Russians and later on the Arabs. Yeah, you know, that's cultural insensitivity of the West, I suppose, or the cartooning of things. And while I understand, you know, it's, it's great to be more culturally sensitive, but I think the scriptwriters did a really good job of mixing it up. Let's just say they had cast it with all Pakistani cast or something. Uh, then maybe, yeah. Like, you know, I like that it's a mix of races. You know, Ami is definitely like European and Leo McKern is Leo McKern, you know. So, I mean, it, I think they did yeah. a good job of trying to make it not one group, but as they kept saying, Eastern. Right. You've also got two Jews, Warren Mitchell and Alfie Bass, as Cockney Indian waiters. <laughs> I, I love that point. Hey, Abdo. Yes, darling? That was fascinating to see as a kid. Well, like, why did that man just call that other man darling? I remember being shocked by that. You know, not getting British humor. You know, right. we're being introduced to it in America. We thought all this stuff was a riot. And maybe that's another value of this movie is to me, this is, I see a direct line between this and Monty Python. Well, yeah, I mean, what about end of part one intermission where they're bobbing Ringo up and down in the field and then Patricia Hayes washing her daughter's back in the bath? End of intermission, part two. Where you been, eh? You're not that temple again, aren't you? And as bad as your sister coming home from work all hours and all colours. End of part two. Part three, later that evening. all these in-jokes that we didn't really get, but they were funny anyway. Same thing with Monty Python. We would watch Monty Python. We didn't really get half of the jokes, but they, they still sounded funny because of the voice inflections or the, deliver or the absurdity of it. 
And I, I think what's really cool about help is the absurdity. Well, yeah, but that absurdity, right? I mean, that was, again, very much of its time, but it's on, on a cutting edge, especially being that it's being broadcast by the Beatles. Yeah. You know, there's a direct line between that and Do Not Adjust Your Set, which is the kids' TV precursor to Monty Python. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which a few episodes I've been lucky enough to obtain over the years and stuff. Mm. But getting back to the sort of mishmash composition of the religious sect, it's different in a way comedically because normally in these TV shows where they would be in some supposedly exotic locale, but they wouldn't name the place or they'd give it some fake name it would resemble one particular thing, right? It would look like you were in Morocco, say, you know, or yeah. Algeria. But in this case, they've decided just to borrow from everywhere and push it all together. And I think that's really very funny. Not only funny, I think smart. Mm. Uh, because look what was happening culturally 10 years later, where you had, you know, the skinheads looking around for uh, packy bashing and all of that horrible stuff that went on for a while. Yeah. And this was a way of not pinning it on, you know, any one place. It was, quote unquote, Eastern, you know, the filthy Eastern ways and all that. Wave. Don't like to. Go on, wave. Shall I? They expect it, don't they? Lovely lads and so natural. I mean, adoration hasn't gone to their heads one jot, has it? You know what I mean, success. It's just so natural and still the same as they was before they was. As usual with British films, especially in that era, a bit of the class system at play there about, you know, the boys next door. Oh, yeah. You've got the toffs in there as well, the upper crusts, um, including, the, you know, the chief at Scotland Yard. Oh, um, Patrick Cargill. It, it's very much a film that sort of speaks to the fans. It, it, it's very, it makes them very personally close to you, the Beatles. Yeah, it does. I know that the, one of the criticisms also, I'm sure you've read it too, it, that it seemed like they were guests in their own film. Well, that was Lennon's comment. I agree with him to a certain point, but I don't think that was so bad. Yeah. I think it really, really worked. I find it interesting that not only is there a Monty Python connection, there's a prisoner connection big time between this movie and the and the prisoner television series. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there is. So you've got two number twos, both pa Patrick Cargill and uh, Leo, Leo McKern were both number two yep. at one point on the show. And then, of course, on the final episode of The Prisoner you know, all you need is love gets used as the soundtrack. So yeah, I wonder what the deal was for that, right? You know, did they pay the kind of equivalent of two hundred and fifty grand that was paid by HBO to have Tomorrow Never Knows on Mad Men? I doubt it. it was most likely just cross promotion. Uh, it's funny. Yeah, I I think songs were much cheaper to license in those days. Yeah. At any rate, it was just exciting to see the Beatles. You forget. It's so easy now. You can go on YouTube, or we all have our own files if we're interested in stuff. We can see the Beatles at a moment's notice, We can, at any stage of their career we're interested in. The excitement in those days of seeing these guys, most of America, I'm sure most of England at that time, didn't have color television sets. That's exactly right. I mean, unless I saw the Beatles come to town, you know, Pathé Newsreel in the cinemas in 63, which I definitely don't recall... Seeing Help was the very first time I saw the Beatles moving in colour. Me too. You know, and up on a, a really big screen, because I actually saw it at the London Pavilion in oh. Leicester Square, London, yeah. where it was premiered, went there a weekday with my mother to a matinee performance. 
um, watched the film, loved it, and then she said, would you like to watch it again? Yeah. So we actually sat through two consecutive performances and then went back home on the train. That is what I remember most. Well, I remember two real great incidents. That that feeling of, oh my God, it's on a big screen and they're in color. And yeah. the other big moment for me was that moment with the two veteran actresses across the street. Wave, go on, wave. They yeah. expect it, don't they? Seeing the four of them, as I've said before, going through those doors and it's all one big apartment was just epiphanous. But they're just living on an ordinary street. Well, an ordinary street, but inside it's a secret playground with vending machines. And- oh, yeah. And of course, that whole thing of living together in cool digs and all the quote unquote zany interactions between them, that's totally predating the monkeys. I'm sure that was not lost on the two guys that developed the monkeys. No way was it lost on them. I'm sure I wasn't the only kid that saw this camaraderie and this four guys against the world thing and like, oh yeah, everybody loves that, loves that element. That was really such a great, crazy moment. And earlier you mentioned the pop art element. It is a pop art film. Now you look in there and go, oh my God, that's a $2,000 lamp. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And the, the furniture, the colors, the styling. Yeah, the set design is absolutely beautiful. I totally agree. Um, I mean, you look at sequences like You've Got to Hide Your Love Away, where we kind of see around their pad and you have Eleanor Bron in that fantastic hot pink suit. Right out of James Bond, you know, right out of, you know, our man Flint. Totally. And then we've got those graphics, haven't we, all the time? You know, it's not just captioning, but it's like these kind of graphics that come up that really predate the Batman TV series. They do by a year. Yeah. And it's it yeah it's just the whole thing feels very pop art and especially that part where where the there's even that little drug reference where the ami has the needle to shrink the finger and it goes into paul's leg and he becomes little tiny paul on the floor right that's so that's like land of the giants before we had land of the giants and that's so pop art you know he's well it definitely borrowed from the incredible shrinking man which was i think 1957 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that pop art, though, taking all of these different elements that are around and just synthesizing them into something, maybe giving them a false sense of of importance? But then we've got the input of Dick Lester and his cinematographer, David Watkin, who give the whole film this sort of fish-eyed lens feel, this blissed-out feel, that even though, as far as we know, the stoners were the Beatles, it's almost as if they were reflecting the Beatles' state of mind. It's a great explanation of it. It does have a trippy feel to it. Oh, yeah. It's blissed out. A stoned feel to it. It's a stoner film. Yeah. And I've always thought that, you know, without a particularly strong story or the Beatles level of enthusiasm, which they had for A Hard Day's Night, it's like Lester and David Watkin basically took over the movie. They became the stars of the movie. When Lennon said we were guest stars in our own movie, I think the stars were Dick Lester and David Watkin. David Watkin, who photographed it, and it was his first color film, he was more willing than any cameraman I have ever worked with before or since to take a gamble and hope that the laboratory will get him out of trouble. One of the things that I had experimented with was using reflected light, which in those days was not the custom. Other people had tried it before me at a time when film stock was slower, needed more light. And so it was a kind, regarded as a kind of extravagant way. Nobody did it. And then David would say, do it. It might work. And sometimes it did. And that willingness to, to push the look of film was quite wonderful. Yeah. 
We spent quite a lot of time in post-production and we took two frames of every shot in the film and put them up on a light box and played around with color filters until we chose which filter and we were putting a 10% cyan over this and over that and we did it for every shot in the film. Now nowadays of course it's all processed on deluxe film but the original prints were absolutely stunning. Steady. I am steady. Now I turn to the right and it locks. I am turning it to the right. It is locking. That's what comes of teaching science by television. You'll thank me in the end. I am lifting it up. I am moving my left leg. Hurry up. I'm moving my right leg. Oh, give it to me. Chief Superintendent. Ringo, please. For you, the famous Ringo. Hold on. It's them. There's only me and Paul nowhere here. I know we're here. Allow me. I'm a bit of a famous mimic in my own small way, you know. James Cagney. Hello there. This is the famous Ringo here, Gear Fab. What is it that I can do for you, as it were, Gear Fab? Not a bit like Cagney. Hey, it is them! I would say the supporting cast, too, though. They are really funny. Cargill does a great job. Yes. Uh, Leo McKern is fabulous in this. I, and, and Eleanor Brun as well. I absolutely love Victor Spinetti and Roy Kinnear. Fantastic duo. Wish they'd been in other films like this together. Kinnear always cracked me up. He has a really wonderful, understated physical comedy to him. It's all in the expression of his face and how he delivers the lines that makes him so funny. He is what we'd call in Britain a total Burke. He manages to do it in such a sympathetic way, like you really love him, even though he's... Oh, yeah, he's a lovable Because you know, he's just so lovable and <laughs> says the stupidest things. I'm better with animals than plugs and transistors. MIT was after me, you know. Wanted me to rule the world for them. Daddy being the local master of the hounds. That's where I get it from. My love of animals. They trust me. I should have been in vivisection. It is the way the two characters play. Yeah. <laughs> Spinetti's complete intolerance of Algernon. He's an idiot. Degree in woodwork, I ask you. It's the wrong plug. Just give me five minutes. It's the brain drain. His brain's draining. What about Spinetti doing the typical British thing of criticising British underachievement? In the name of science, I demand that ring. Yours, it's yours. Hey, it's worth something, isn't it? A couple of bob at least. Had to do all this myself, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> Backward Britain, they call us on Wall Street. With a ring like that, could I interest the military? 
No, I could not. Right, Algernon, my little black bag. I shall have to operate. They're on the national health, won't they? Get out. British, you see. Useless. If I had a Luger, huh? Are your scientists properly equipped, eh? Huh? Think on it. As a Brit watching that film, you totally recognise that mentality. Is that early for that? I, I always think of that as more of a 70s thing, like where everybody was, you know, like the Ruddles. Yeah, I would agree. I am a bit surprised it's that early. I, I mean, I was too young then to be aware of that kind of conversation, but certainly heard it a whole lot in the 70s and beyond. So I don't know for sure if it was of that time, but I haven't seen it pop up anywhere else in that era. Nor had I. And it seems like the economy was still doing well in England in those days, right? So Yeah, it was. Very interesting. It was ahead of time, you know, that way. And uh, in that outlook, you know, kind of trashing the government. Yeah. It, I mean, it was very low unemployment, you know, very low inflation. Bad was to come, not far down the road. But uh, at that point, it was all going well. The underlying theme of misunderstanding of religious culture and East versus West, which would really blow up in the next 15 years, not so much even in the next 10 years. Well, especially given the West's perception of Eastern culture, which comes through strongly in this film. When you said that some people see it now as sort of racist, it's because of that. It's not as if the Eastern philosophy is getting a fair crack of the whip here. No, not at all. It's, it is very fascinating to have visualized such a problem. I guess that's my impression of those days is post-war Britain, post-war America, post-war West, you know, that wasn't Germany, was very kind of like, okay, we've solved all the world's problems now. Everyone's just going to follow our lead. We're it. This is the way to think, the way to do. Let's capture their hearts and minds. And it's very interesting that it could have been so many different plot lines, and yet it's this sort of thing that almost foreshadows what will happen you know, with the Islamic Revolution 13 years later, the quote-unquote primitive East suddenly, you know, becomes a force and kind of knocks the battery off the shoulder of the big bad West. There's a little bit of that happening in here. I wonder what George thought about it later on, not just so much the film, but, I mean, he was never averse to taking the piss out of anything, of course, like all the Beatles, even the things that he loved. But you sort of wonder how he did feel about being party to piss-taking out of Eastern philosophy in this way when he embraced it so passionately. I don't want to knock anyone's religion. But getting back to Dick Lester's contribution and David Watkin, the cinematographer, when I said end of part one intermission predates Python... That's also Dick Lester taking straight out of the running, jumping and standing still yeah. film, right? You know, so he's bringing that kind of sensibility, which completely is in tune with the Beatles, of course. And then you've got these fantastic visual song sequences. Oh, absolutely beautiful. To film a song for, for Richard was, um, he'd never done that before. It's a bit different from filming an action shot when you've actually got to film a band on stage. I said to them, have you ever skied? None of them had. 
I said, well, don't try it until we, we get the cameras out. We put three cameras on them, and I said, now learn how to ski. There's a hill, do it. And we just filmed everything that, that happened, and it all happened for real. And if something was particularly good, we would just slightly embellish it. We took all the material back, handed it to John Victor Smith, who was the editor, and said, you look at it fresh and put it together in whichever way you want. And his first cut, we finally changed no more than three shots. The only thing I added was we had some telegraph wires, which were ugly. And, and I thought, well, we can't get rid of them because this was before any electronic means of painting something out. So uh, we, uh, we just came up with the idea of, of uh, putting the notes from the song on it. Um, and I think that there were two other suggestions. But other than that, the film just fell into place. It was one of those wonderful sequences that it almost it cut itself. songs were videos, you know, because I do believe that uh, about uh, Richard Lester, that he was, uh, in a sense, initiated the video filming song technique, you know, in those movies that a lot of people copied later on. With the musical numbers, again, we carried on this, the principle of, that we started with Hard Day's Night, that some of the numbers would be them performing for reasons that where they had to perform, where they're in a studio, or even if that studio was taken out of doors and put onto Salisbury Plain for plot reasons. That was a performance. Then there were songs which they did where their images were placed next to the music. Maybe one of them would be performing live and the rest were acting it out. The fact that it released a kind of filmmaking to become available for a lot of pop music and how music is put on the screen ended at the end of Help. Sometime afterwards, I was sent a parchment scroll from MTV declaring that I was the father of MTV. Uh, and I think it's an old line of mine, but probably worth repeating, is that I 
immediately cabled back and, and demanded a blood test. I need you. I need you. The ones that jump out for me are you're going to lose that girl, ticket to ride, and another girl. I mean, you're going to lose that girl, the lighting. That is the best film of the Beatles doing a video, quote-unquote, that exists. I mean, it is really, really beautiful. Well, it is. It, and talk about a forerunner of the full-blown pop videos of, you know, sort of late 70s, early 80s. Yep. Way, way, way ahead of its time. You're gonna lose that yes, girl. Yes, you're gonna lose that girl. You're gonna lose, yes, yes, you're gonna that, lose girl. that girl. If you don't take her out tonight, she's gonna change she's her mind. Gonna change her mind. And I will take her Once again, not having seen it for a few years, and then when it came out on video. This is now the MTV era, and I'm looking at it going, God, this looks modern. In Head, the monkeys try to achieve that sort of level, but for me, it doesn't even get near that. There's just a professionalism and a perfectionism to how it's shot and edited that is what is such a sharp juxtaposition when you then see Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, definitely can get behind that. As much as you know, Head was like so influential to me uh, personally as made made me want to make movies it maybe because it seemed a little more accessible when i look at help i'm like oh my god i could never make a film that beautiful it's that's beyond my ability yeah and and that's what the beatles wanted to get away from in a way isn't it it's, again they'd been there done that and so you know they wanted to do their own thing and that's fair enough but 
thank God we've got help, you know, for that absolute pristine beauty. And the same with another girl, really. It's not quite as dramatic in terms of the lighting, but it has its moments where they use color filters and some, you know, and fisheye lenses. Yeah, the lenses fisheye lenses uh, way, there's two years, uh, three years ahead of its time. And Ticket to Ride, by the way, also, yes. right? Just beautiful. The graphics on the screen with the notes going across the screen and the editing of it is just super. Yeah, the re- it does look lush. It looks expensive. It looks like a, a purpose-made video as opposed to a, a segment in a movie. And you almost didn't care, at least as a kid when I watched it. It was just such eye candy, and it had the Beatles and great music. So you're like, I don't care if this story's kind of weak. You know, it's like, so what? What I can't recall is, did I start to get bored or did my attention start to lag? I mean, I was six years old at the time when it got to the last part of the film where is it like the last 20 minutes? There's no Beatles songs. No, but they it did give me an appreciation on a very minor level for classical music because of that overture of the Barber of Seville that they use. I didn't recognize Beethoven's famous Ninth Symphony. It was also kind of weird that there wasn't as a Beatles song over the closing titles. I guess they'd used them all up. <laughs> you know, it's... Well, well, they could have put yesterday. Well, let's. this is also a good time to talk about one of my favorite elements of this, which was the American version of Help as opposed to the British version of Help, because you had all of the cool, weird Ken Thorne reinterpretations of Beatles songs. Ken was involved in all the Dick Lester films, as far as I know.
that would have been okay for me if it didn't bugger up the whole Help album, you know, but it's the omission of the other tracks that is a problem. But, but I get it. It's more film-centric, the, the American version. Yeah, it was a real film soundtrack in a sense, as opposed to the album Help. Because as you know, over here, the, yeah. that was still in that period where the albums are all butchered up in America. Yes, that's right. I mean, who cares when you can squeeze out another couple of albums from it? I think the accountants cared a lot. So that's why it happened, you know. That music, it's very interesting. It does give a whole different feel to the listening experience. It does, and I love it so much. When I, I put that one, that's maybe one of the most played in my car driving around. And I love the instrumental sections, especially the uh, especially the uh, the fantasy section of From Me to You, I think is, is particularly beautiful. So one second, are you telling me you drive around in your car listening to the help incidental music and george martin's yellow submarine music oh yes oh as a matter of fact one of the things you can do with the yellow submarine folks you can do try this at home if you put on the yellow submarine dvd you can shut off the dialogue and get even more of george martin's instrumentals for uh, yellow submarine and i've i've not only have i done that i have recorded that and made a cd out of it so i can listen to it in the car why love it because i like it why do you listen to any music? Because you like it. I love it. It evokes a mood. I mean, if you take George Martin's instrumentals out of Yellow Submarine, it's not as good. It's fantastic so stuff. So what do you think? <laughs> Getting back to the film, what, what do you think of the lineup of recordings compared to those in A Hard Day's Night? Hmm. When you mean lineup, you mean the way they're sequenced or just the songs themselves? No, the songs themselves. Well... That's a difficult question. Obviously, Help is just a chart-strangling monster. But you had so much of that. You had, I, you know, Should Have Known Better. You have Hard Day's Night. I mean, you've got more hits, obviously, in A Hard Day's Night. Maybe that's why some people were disappointed by it. I just love the other songs. I I love I Need You and The Night Before. I It's like one of my favorite Paul songs that really is kind of under the radar. Me too. Yeah, I mean, for me, it stands up every bit as well as the Hard Day's Night soundtrack. I, I think, you know, they came up with some great songs. I know Help is often seen as this sort of nothing album and they're basically treading water. Well, maybe artistically they were largely treading water. Who could blame them, given their schedule at the time? But I, I think in terms of the numbers they came up with and how they recorded them, how they performed them, beautiful, fantastic songs. Well, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. I just thought, you know, you had so much impact, I think, with A Hard Day's Night on so many levels, and all of the songs were, you know, bang, bang, bang. Everything was really, you know, there's there's really not a bad or, or like something you haven't heard a million times on that soundtrack. Whereas some of these other songs, you know, I Need You or, as I said, The Night Before. Love them. You know, um, and th those two that you just mentioned, love them. We said our goodbye the night before. Love was in your eyes the night before. Now today.
No doubt about it for this movie, you know, where it was bigger budget in terms of the locales, in terms of cinematography and the set design and everything that went into it. It's just higher production values. And I personally think it paid off, but I would have liked a stronger story somehow. I know, again, it was just a pop movie, but after a hard day's night, I would have liked something. I mean, we're talking about all the aspects of this film that had a knock-on effect and influenced others. I don't know how much of the storyline, the aspects of it, as we said, you know, some elements of it. But in terms of a script... Did you buy the deluxe boxed version of the DVD? Yeah, yeah. So you got the script in that so one can kind of go through it and have a little, have a go around it. I think it was so well edited and paced. Now, you did bring up like that kind of ending last 20 minutes, maybe the pace lags yeah. a little bit in places and it gets a little too slapstick. It's strange, isn't it, that at some point, at maybe the halfway mark of that last part, they didn't insert another musical number. It's not as if the Beatles had nothing else in the world. I think it's getting it to fit. I get the feeling when I look at that part of the film, and of course it was all shot out of sequence. I know that uh, Murray the K, for example, who had attached himself like a barnacle to them the previous year, he went down and did a series of reports you know, as they were filming that last section, you know, with the giant statue of Kaili and the water dyed colors and all that stuff. And he was kind of, he couldn't figure out what the hell was going on with the storyline. I remember his sense of what is this? I wonder right. how much of that last scene was all improvised. You know what I mean? It's just like, okay, guys, we're having a, a, a slapstick fight scene. It doesn't look like it was particularly... Like certain things were choreographed, but other things, you you know, you wonder, is it just the Beatles? They're stoned and they're goofing around and it's like... Yeah, I think there's a, a fair bit of that. He had to allow for that on both those movies, right? You know, to allow them with their own humor because he knew how infectious that could be. So he, I'm sure he had to give them, you know, they had the framework, but within that framework, I'm sure they had some room for maneuver. It's interesting how well it was hidden in the first film as opposed to the second one because... Outside of 
I, you and I have spoken about this before, the brilliant Ringo performance of being sort of dejected and forlorn as he's going along the the, the, the riverbank there when he was actually yeah. really hung over. Whereas in this one, you notice all the lines, they're flubbing because they're stoned and they just leave it in, you know? It's like, yeah. The dialogue was much more complex because uh, we, we were working with um, a, a, almost a surreal writer in Charles Wood who was a word play specialist. Um, and, and so there were, there were lots of plays on words that were going on, which, which they could all manage. I mean, John was writing books within this style. Um, but, it, but it meant that there needed a little bit more concentration in, uh, and um, in those days, by concentration, I meant please don't lose your script in the first week. You know, try to, try to keep it in the car for as long as you can. You know, the dreaded marijuana was looming very large in our lives. This was beginning to get into that period when um, people were sort of giving up the drink, which had been the sort of stimulant of the times and we're getting into the herbal jazz cigarettes. We smoked reefers on the plane all the way to the Bahamas. <laughs> John, how was the trip over? Did you all uh, get bored on the flight or do you have things that uh, usually keep you entertained that, that you all were doing? Well, uh, we got stoned. All right. No, I'm, I know you're only kidding. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> On the plane, we just had, it was like a charter flight with all the film, the actors and the crew and everything like that. But we just thought, yeah, you know, nobody can smell it. We used to have mal smoking cigars to drown out the smell of it. <laughs> and the smell was just going back in this plane, but we had fun in those days. By then, we were smoking marijuana for breakfast at that period. We were well into marijuana and nobody could communicate with us because it was just four glazed eyes giggling all the time, you know, in their own world. And I think that was one of the reasons for not learning the script. We just sort of showed up a bit stoned, you know, and sort of smiled a lot and hoped we'd get through it. Hey, I'll cop this one hand. Ugly, though, aren't they? Hands. Some people's are. You're lighting the kitty again. Show us your hand, Ringo. Yeah. You want to chuck one in? Get on. How about drumming, though, do you thought of that? Won't affect it. Well, I mean, I don't know many, um... It appears I need one card. It's difficult when four people all have to say, um, lines, you know, one behind the other. And, uh, you know, if one person forgets it, you've got to start again, and then the next person forget his lines. And we did some scenes, the scenes that were in Buckingham Palace in Help. We, we were doing that scene for days. You know, where they put some, there was some pipe with some red smoke comes through, you know, and we shove it out the window and all the guards fall over. Must be their tea break. That scene, it just went on forever, you know. We were just in stitches, just in hysterics <laughs> laughing and... We pushed Dick Lester, I think, to the limit of his... Because uh, he was very, very easygoing. He was a very a good you know, pleasure to work with. There's one scene in the film where um, Victor Spinetti and uh, whoever else is in the scene, and they're doing that curling, you know, those big stones they, they do. <laughs> and one of them, of course, has a bomb in it. We find out about this, or it's going to blow up, and we have to run. We have to run away. Run, Ringo! Stop! Well, Paul and I ran about seven miles. 
We <laughs> 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 just ran and ran so we could stop and have a joint and <laughs> come back. <laughs> we were just off. You know, we'd run to Switzerland. Dick Lester knew the very little would get done after lunch. The first interview I ever conducted for a magazine, in this case for a fanzine, was with Victor Spinetti back in 1980. Lucky you. And he said to me that for him, all the best footage from Help ended up on the editing room floor mm. because they were stoned and, and they were having a, a real blast. And of course, the policy in those days with all the major studios was that after a year, all of the rejected footage was basically destroyed. And the only place we see some bits of it are in the trailers because they had separate trailer departments. Yes. And so they would often feed them the rough footage while they were still in production and they'd assemble a trailer. And in some of these trailers, you get to see some priceless footage that thereafter went missing. Being a collector, being looking for this stuff at least a few hours every day of my life, I still hold out hope there's a thing about the Beatles, even in the moment. As soon as somebody knew that stuff was going in the bin, someone was in the bin getting it. And someday, it, something might show up. I would not be surprised. Right. Sometimes in foreign prints. I, I found that when I did a book about the films of Marilyn Monroe. And not only, you know, the trailers contain footage of deleted scenes, but also certain segments that were edited out of the U.S. release would turn up in you know, a Mexican print or from wherever. Oh, yeah, that happened with Metropolis. They found a big chunk of the missing stuff in South America somewhere. And, you know, years after, you know, Freddie Mercury and those guys were involved in the restoration of it, they, they found more later on, stuff like that. It does happen. In the Help trailer, there's that segment with George inside that sort of glass bubble. Yeah, and there was that other scene that's in the bonus where they talk about another scene, but they, they just had a couple of stills. Oh, you mean the one with Wendy Richard and Frankie Howard yes. and Paul? Yes. Yeah, that's all we've got. All we've got are the stills, and I believe that because otherwise I'm sure they would have put it in as the extras. It hasn't been found yet, but I still think it may be found. And there were so many home movies being shot on that set. There's got to be an hour of home movies of the swimming pool stuff and up in Austria, yeah. and Leo McKern... Uh, shot a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. So, but so far, none of the home movies that I can think of have any scenes that we haven't already got something, go you know, like something completely new. That hasn't shown up yet. Hey, do your parents need help? Like, if your father gets his thumb stuck in the coin changer when he's giving you your allowance, does he seem depressed? And when you ignore your mother's plea to take a chicken sandwich along to the discotheque, does she look despondent? If so, tell them to stop worrying. Help is on the way. Won't you please, please help me? Now, we're sure you know all about Help, the new Beatles movie, but your parents may not. It took some of them months to get down to see the Beatles in a hard day's night, though they laughed just as loud as you did once they were there, and they really flipped with a great Beatles sound. So you better tell your parents that Help, the new Beatles movie, a United Artists release, has spine-tickling adventure, side-tingling laughter, and lots of lively music. And be sure to tell them that it's in color, too. Be the first in your neighborhood to give his parent a hand. They need help. Help me. Of course, we haven't yet mentioned one of the big foreshadowings in this film that certainly had some kind of influence, if you like, is the airport scene where they're in disguise. I was going to mention that. Absolutely uncanny 
how John turned out looking like that in 69. I mean, it's almost dead on, apart from the clothes. George certainly had the look there kind of around 67. Yep. Pepperish time. And Ringo... Goes to his Without past. the goatee, but that choppy sort of hairdo, also in, around time of All You Need Is Love. Okay, who let it out? Oh, damn, no. We're not going there. We just put it around, we're going there. We're not going there. We just put it round, we're going there. Just so everybody would think we were going there. I'd like to go there. You wouldn't like it. Where are we going then? Never you mind. The other thing that gets me about that is I'm sure that's where the Ruddles got the idea of putting Nasty in the wheelchair looking like that at the end, you know? Oh, yeah. Because just the whole idea that John's <laughs> in the wheelchair, I just all of that is like crazy. But of course, earlier in the film, we actually get the first sighting of John's national health specs when they are in his soup in the Indian restaurant. Oh, that's right. That's right. I like lots of season in me soup. Yeah. So that's the first sighting of, of the specs. And then we see him wearing them at the airport. There's another foreshadowment, which is when Clang, dressed as the snowman, unwittingly wins the ski jump. We see our first peak of the Beatles dressed as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, kind of, yeah. I know what you mean. Oh, it's pretty close. I mean, think about it. I mean, like the whole idea, they're playing brass instruments and what Ringo's eating a cymbal or George's. I can't try and remember who's eating what. George is eating the cymbal, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, once again, absurdist. Just thrown in there, right? Little crazy visual. But that's, the, yeah, that is what is called, is that absurdist aspect, right? Which is very much Dick Lester and the Beatles were totally into that. They completely in tune. That's where we see it so much in this film. I think more than A Hard Day's Night is that absurdist humour that they just loved. Exactly. And it works perfectly. And uh, we would be remiss if we did not mention the shooting location for the, the place that stood in for Buckingham Palace has got a little bit of history too, doesn't it? Yeah, that's Cliveden, right? Which we mentioned in our Christine Keeler and the Beatles show. It was owned by Lord Astor. And the whole Keeler affair had taken place there sort of around 1961, 62, around the pool. And there are photos of the Beatles around that very same pool. And the interiors were shot there for, as you say, simulating Buckingham Palace. Kind of adds a whole new meaning to what's that whirly thing coming through his stomach. You're talking about Alien? <laughs> no, I'm talking about Christine Keeler and those guys and that crew. Maybe Prince Philip, who knows? Maybe he was the whirly thing coming through her stomach. But we digress. But we die. <laughs> That's why I'm here. There's something about that final shot as they're backing up from the absurdity of the beach scene, you yeah. know, where the fight is taking place. And help is playing over the soundtrack. Yeah, and, you're, and you're backing up and you're looking through the bottom of a sewing machine. Yes, singer. Well, it was it was because they uh, dedicate the film to Elias Howe. And are you going to say to me that is foreshadowing Elvis's comeback special, which was singer? And now, did they did Elvis credit Elias Howe as well? No, I oh. can't believe. I, I, seriously, was that your point? No, my point was the absurdity of like <laughs> you're you're as a I the shock of that scene as they're pulling back and pulling back and pulling back and pulling back. And then all of a sudden, you see this sewing machine, and they go that, you know, this is all because we'd like to dedicate this to, you know, Elias Howe, I mean, who in 1848 invented the sewing machine. Right. That just, to me, was like, 
part of the insanity. You know, here we go. We've, we've gone this whole way and that they've thrown us this massive curveball at the end of the movie. Who the hell else would do that? Well, who else but the Beatles with Dick Lester? Yeah. So to summarize then, for you, Help is the finest Beatles celluloid effort. It's the one I come back to again and again and again. I enjoy it. I find something new. I find something beautiful. It has, for me, been the most enjoyable thing to come back to again and again and again, with the possible exception of Yellow Submarine. But I like it better than Yellow Submarine. How did it inspire you, though? Oh, so many ways. I think the Beatles became Technicolor when I saw that as a child. They they were kind of cartoon characters, quite literally, because I was that fall was when I started watching the cartoons. That was like the next thing I saw of the Beatles in color. Yeah. The Beatles became more real. They weren't just these black and white things on TV anymore. There was like, it seemed like they were having incredible fun with each other. It seemed that they were getting each other out of jams more. The dynamics between the band in A Hard Day's Night seems different to me than it does in Help, in that in Help, you've got Ringo's in trouble and the other guys are going to do anything they can to save him, you know, including wearing masks to look like Ringo to, to, to trick the bad guys. And that was really meaningful to me. And I that gave me that sense of the four guys against the world. And that's what another reason I loved it so much. I, I think um it just looked like they're having super fun. They're a little stoned, but underneath it all they were all for one and one for all. Yeah. I mean for me that movie is inexorably tied to the memory of going to see it with my mother in the cinema at the time. And it actually came full circle, I'm glad to say. A couple of months before she died, she was visiting the States, and we actually sat down and watched Help together again for the first time in over 50 years. So that was pretty fabulous. I mean, I, there was never a time that I didn't like Help. I always loved Help, just not as much as A Hard Day's Night. But I have to say that as the years have gone by, I get just as much enjoyment out of watching both movies, even though I still think A Hard Day's Night is a much sharper script. It's always going to be the one that's, artistically, you know, one of the last black and white films, you know, it, it's it's so tied to that. We've done a couple of experiments. Um, there's a there's a great young artist out there, Lexi Carafellis, um, fantastic illustrator and painter, and big Beatles fan. Her, her parents, um, you know, raised her the right way, as we like to say. And she did a yeah. few experiments with colorizing, his, you know, accurately colorizing bits of A Hard Day's Night. Um, just for her own enjoyment, to see what it would be like. And I've shown those to some real heavy Beatles fans. I say, hey, you ever see this kid who did this great colorization? Very accurate. And blah, blah. And when I've shown people that, they go, nah, I don't like it. And I'm like, what are you, crazy? <laughs> this is great. Hard Day's Night in color. And they're like, no, no, it needs to be film noir. It needs to be black and white. And I guess I understand. I'd still love to see it. Yeah, but if you look at the lighting of a segment like You're Going to Lose That Girl, that's very noirish. It's color, but it's noirish photography. Full of shadows and smoke getting blown into those shadows. Oh, God, it's beautiful. I mean, just everything. The microphones are beautiful. Just the decisions in, in shooting that. Like I say, fan why that didn't win some sort of cinematography award, that's a bit of a robbery. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look also at Hard Day's Night, that little piece that Dick Lester's always been so proud of in the And I Love Her segment, where Paul goes into sort of silhouette, yeah. you know, with the backlighting um and that was kind of just an experiment by him and it worked out beautifully and it's like he just takes it to a whole other level in you're going to lose that girl so let me ask you do you think and 
you've seen, I'm sure, as many of the color pictures taken on the set of um, A Hard Day's Night. Interestingly enough, I'm thinking of the parts where you see everything in shades of grays, which you realize works better for black and white film, but looks so yeah. fascinating in color because the flesh tones pop. And you right. know, do you think A Hard Day's Night would be seen as less arty if had it been shot in color? Huh? It would have been shot differently. Think That's so? the point. We can't answer that because it would have been shot differently. Had it just been exactly that set up in color, no, I think it looks better in black and white. Okay, yeah, that's that's more my question. Yeah, because yeah. obviously, the, obviously, a year later, Dick Lester didn't become that much different of a director in a year. Right, um, right. And he had always had it in him, but there's just something that seems more, I don't know, lush and weird and. If maybe uh, maybe I'd look at it as a hard day's night seems to be the sort of scotch and coke and amphetamines movie, <laughs> you know, the stimulant movie. And in case anyone misses the point where John with the coke bottle up his nose. <laughs> Here's a question, though, in terms of its influence. I firmly believe Python would have happened without help. But would the Monkeys TV show have happened without it? No. Was was a hard day's night enough for m the Monkeys to go into production? Or do you think that came off the back of help? I think it came off of help because you can tell with the difference in the camaraderie and the, that idea of living communally. That's totally Schneider and Ralphs. And yeah. I know that the story of the monkeys was that they were not successful and were trying to get there, but it was all those little victories. Instead of kind of pecking at each other a little bit, it's mm. more like, you know, a, a big love fest. But I think the stoned pace works with the color and the lush locations, you know, and the it's all the little touches in help. Like, with the Beatles being on the, the toboggan, you know, and the little ho, 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 you know, whatever the hell that was, just seemed like a secret language between, like, you know, really, uh, really ho, close. Ho, ho, ho. ho. Yeah, that, and, and then why are they stacked on top of you? You know, it's before I really, you know, <laughs> noticed how there's something kind of wrong. And who's Maybe they were replicating in their heads being in the back of the van. That's what I think of now. It's it's funny you say that, because that's exactly what it's I think It's cold of. out there, right? And that's why they stacked on top of each other in the van, because they were freezing cold. I would like to think that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Richard... The other thing that help has supplied me a lifetime of enjoyment with, which was it inspired me to do voices. And um, for years, as a teenager, I would walk around with friends doing lines from the film. And uh, one of my favorites, of course, were the things we have to do in these heathen countries. Or, you know, <laughs> to this day on a cold day, I, if I'm standing around with a friend and it's raining, I'll Swami, it's raining on you. Or... It's cold. It's a cold place. It comes up, like, I don't even think, just it's an autoresponder at this point is lines from that film. And, what about uh, go to the window? Go to the window. Go to the window. Go to the window. It's, it's the whole cadence to it. It was irresistible, as it, and I'm still trying to perfect it. Now, what I want to hear is how Ed Sullivan would have done that line. Well, you know, Richard, sometimes it's go to the window, go to the window. <laughs> but when our little Italian mouse friend Topo Gigio is around, <laughs> it's via Alfinestra. <laughs> via Alfinestra. Now, drive home safely and good night. Here I stand, head in hand. Turn my face to the wall 
If she's gone, I can't go on Feeling too foot small Everywhere people stare Each and every day I can see them laugh at me And I hear them sing Hey, you've got to hide your love away Hey, you've got to hide your love away How can I even try? I can never win She said to me, love will find a way Gather round all you clowns, let me hear you say Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartok. That was Herman's Hermits with their very big hit, I'm Into Something Good. Now, Herman's Hermits are going to be back in our little show uh, in a few minutes, but before that, we've got a very special guest who's come down today, um, and uh, the reason why he's come is to talk about four young men called The Beatles. They start work next week on their new film, and the director of that new film is the man who so very successfully directed for us last year, A Hard Day's Night. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Lester. Richard, what do you think we could tell them about the new Beatles pick? Well, first of all, it's going to be different from the last one. It will be in color. It will be uh, a film that has a lot of plot and a lot of entertainment about it. And Ringo's in trouble again. <laughs> do you think we should say um, right away that there's not going to be any love interest? Yes, there, there's not going to be any love interest. And <laughs> do you think that... Um, that you're going to bring Ringo to the fore? Well, um, he's attacked by a tiger, if that's what you mean. I mean, it's, uh, he has a lot of problems in the film, and uh, the boys help him out of those difficulties. So, um, certainly he is in the fore, but we, we hope that the boys will be evenly spread throughout the film. They, they all will um, have as much to do, and um, 
The only thing is the other three are trying to save Ringo from himself. He's shooting most of it in London. Yes, um, a lot will be shot in London. There will be more shot in the studio because it's a more formal film than the, the last one. Um, there'll be less of a documentary feeling. There'll be a very... In fact, there's so much plot that um, I don't know whether we'll ever finish it or not. Uh, uh, lots of little, new songs? Well, lots of new songs written by um, those two, you know, oh, yeah. them. Well, um, yeah. And um, a little bit will be shot in the sun um, somewhere, in, you know, we hope, uh, on an island. I'll be there, I think. Yes, I'm trying to as well. <laughs> I hope that it's as successful as A Hard Day Tonight, naturally. And I wish you a lot of luck with it, and thanks Thank very, very much, much for coming down. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Good night.